We are continuing our series entitled Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. This is in line with our church-wide vision to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. Now, in the past two sermons, we gave definitions. We've defined the terms disciple. We've defined disciple maker. We've defined what we mean by post-Christian. We define doctrinal. So if you want definitions, you can access the sermons from the past two weeks. Last, the last week, we showed that uh, doctrinal disciple-making is what the New Testament prescribes for dealing with times of difficulty and deception. And so as the world grows and it's in its antagonism towards Christianity and Christian values, the New Testament solution is to make mature disciples of Christ. I want to start with, with this today. Okay? They may not be in here, uh, but if you're under 25 years old and if you're able to, which I know you probably are, um, if you feel comfortable, would you please stand up? If you're under 25 years old. Thank you. Stay standing. Stay standing. Under 25 years old. Watch this jump. Hey, you know, you never tell people who are older than you to stand up, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be in this position. All right. So, um, if... If you're under 40, would you please stand up? Under 40, not over 40, under 40. All right, thank you very much. Will you please sit down? Everybody else is over 40. Okay. So, appreciate all of you. I think when it comes to um, our greatest concern for what we described in the past few weeks as post-Christianity and the impact on the local church, especially a church like ours, those who are 25, that's like the oldest of Gen Z. So you can see our target, who we're concerned about. But if you're in here, you know, we as a church will continue to equip you. It's not that you won't struggle with the faith, but you're here. You're in a church, you love the Lord, you're trying to love the Lord, or if you're not yet a Christian, you're interested in learning about Jesus Christ. You're under 40, those are the millennials. The millennials are in here. Uh, there's still more that we can reach, but there are millennials in here. And everybody else, you know, you're, you're of my generation or above. And, and I would say the people that we are most concerned about reaching our concerns it's see none of you are sitting in here you, if you're 50 plus you're probably worried about post-christian values but you're not sitting in here thinking well pastor i'm questioning whether or not christianity is legit that's not why you're in here your concern is about the people who are not in here your concern is about the generation that's right now worshiping in the youth service and the children and maybe other brothers and sisters in Christ or others that are like our, I'm sorry, Gen Z brothers and sisters in Christ that are out there. It is that generation that needs to grab hold of the Word of God, which you are holding fast to. I've entitled our message today, Doctrinal Disciple Makers in Life and in Home. I added the life because it's not just for those of you who are parents at home. Doctrinal disciple-making is a pattern where we need to take the Word of God, hold fast to it, and pass it down to the next generation. But in order to do that, it's not just teaching and throwing doctrine 
at a generation that's watching, but it's being able to go down and foster those relationships. I firmly believe that the answer to reaching the future generations is not, it's not most of us in this room. What we have to do is not panic, but we take the word of God that we already know and we teach it down just to the next generation. And it is those under 25, they're going to have some answers. And then those sitting in the youth service, one of those people, two of those, they're going to become pastors and missionaries. They're going to figure out because the church belongs to Jesus Christ. And if we simply, we don't have to do brain science on cultural theology. If we understand the Bible and are willing to have relationships and pass down that Bible and that Bible gets a hold, they get a hold of the Bible, they hold fast, somebody sitting in there is going to figure out because Jesus is going to lead them to plant the churches for those future generations. So today, we're going to go through the text at the end of the sermon. My argument, my argument is from the top, we have a vision to be a vibrant church of disciple makers in line with the Great Commission. My argument is equipping parents, and not just parents, but spiritual parents and real parents, to be primary disciple makers in the home is the one ministry that's going to drive us forward as a church of three congregations. Without that ministry, we don't need to be three. We, I mean, we don't need to be one church. We can be three churches. But what keeps us one church is that every congregation needs that disciple-making ministry. That is actually the answer for post-Christian concerns. That's my argument that I hope to show today. The last two sermons, it was just a build-up to this. Let's dive in. Doctrinal disciple-makers, grab God's word, meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Title, once again, disciple-makers in life and home. Today, we pick up where we left off last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, we see one imperative that captures the key command for today's passage. Today, pas today's passage talks about the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture, but the one command, the one imperative, is a continuous command. It's continue. Continue. And so last week we saw this, 2 Timothy 3.14, but, but unlike the deceptive teachers, Timothy, unlike the believers that are giving in to the de deception of false teaching and the various ideas and the sinful vices in this world, you, Timothy, and those who you would teach, including all of us, believers in the church, continue, that's the command, continue in what you've learned. What, what is it that we've learned? The argument is scripture, the sacred writings. You have learned it, so continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. Not only have you been given knowledge, but you've come to conviction. Isn't that our prayer for, the, for us, for our younger generation, for new believers, that they would not only learn the scriptures, but, that, but they would hold fast to the scriptures and the scriptures would hold fast, that they would grab onto those scriptures? That you firmly believe, meaning you've been convinced that the scriptures are true. And then last week, we talked about knowing from whom you learned it. The importance of Paul as a disciple maker in Timothy's life. And today, we'll continue that, that thread of thinking. But that's the command. That is the imperative. So today, we only have one point. Hold fast to the doctrines of scripture. Hold fast to the doctrines of scripture. But we have four 
reasons why. Four reasons why. Reason number one. Reason number one is that Scripture is foundational for salvation in Christ. That's why we got to hold fast. You don't have to hold fast to new methods. You've got to constantly adapt your methods of ministry to meet an ever-changing world. Technology changes, you adapt. But the one thing that you don't change, that you hold fast to, are the doctrines of Scripture. So whether those doctrines are on your phone or on a piece of paper, that's technology, right? But, but the words should not change. The Scriptures do not change That's the only way that they change you. It's an unchanging external source of authority that tells every generation what Christianity means and how a Christian needs to conform their lives to an external source of authority. So what we see in verse 15 is Scripture is foundational for salvation in Christ. It says, from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you, key phrase, wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Right, so scripture, the Bible is able to make you wise for salvation, not pragmatics, nothing else. It's scripture is able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's why I don't think parents need to get on TikTok and start a TikTok account. If I did TikTok, you Gen Z people would be like, Hanley, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. You get on TikTok, right? You pass the word through TikTok. For me to get on TikTok, you'll be embarrassed of me. So I don't have to learn how to use TikTok. I need to teach you scripture. And you TikTok that scripture, right, Uh, for your generation. That's why we don't have to be afraid, beloved. We just need to know the scriptures. And what the younger generation wants is they want just not teachings of scripture, but they need examples of resilience. They need examples of adults who have endured through various generations and trials. Adults who have learned to balance their career, their family, wrestle through marriage issues, wrestle through parenting. That's what every subsequent generation needs to see. They need to see scriptures that have made one generation wise for salvation passed down and through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this term, sacred writings, it refers here in verse 15 to the Old Testament because when Paul wrote, the New Testament was not fully canonized, meaning all all the letters weren't fully written, and the Bible, the New Testament, was not yet put together in full. So what Paul is referring to are the Old Testament books of the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, which points towards the coming of Christ. So when you add Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that is the sacred writings. Now, of course, for you and me, we have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. But for Paul, the Bible for him was the Old Testament, the Old Testament and Christ as the fulfillment. So Christ and the Old Testament is the sacred writings that Paul is referring to. Timothy was taught the sacred writings. Right? And so all of this includes the stories of how, how uh, Adam failed, but Jesus is the true and better Adam who is the serpent crusher. He would defeat Satan and redeem Adam's fallen race. Right? This, this talks about Abraham and God's promise to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all the nations would receive blessing and could come to salvation. And we understand that seed to be Jesus Christ. We understand the Old Testament law was meant to point us towards our need for Christ as the only person who could fully fulfill it. We understand that the prophets predicted the coming of the Messiah. 
which is why we say the Old Testament points prophetically towards the coming of Christ. And so the Old Testament provides the foundation. And that's why we get the point that the Old Testament, Scripture, is foundational for salvation in Christ. Scripture does not save you. Think about that. If you simply have the Bible alone and it's just knowledge, you can believe in a bunch of stories that doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. So when you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, based on how Christ is explained and proclaimed in Scripture, you are saved. Scripture is foundational to, for leading you to salvation, but it's ultimately Scripture pointing to Christ. Now, not only is Scripture foundational for salvation in Christ, but Scripture is foundational for disciple-making in the home. This is where I want to land us today, and really where we see the foundation of what unites our church, right? It says here in verse 15, in the beginning of verse 15, it says, And how from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, acquaintance with the Scripture does not lead to salvation in Christ. Acquaintance is like the children, and many of you growing up in the church, uh, learning about the stories of the Bible, the stories of Moses and him leading God's people across the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea being parted, uh, or Noah's flood, and different stories of the Bible, King David, David and Goliath. But those stories alone are foundational, but you need to actually exercise a personal decision, a personal response of faith in Christ to be saved. You actually also have to believe that those stories are true, right? So from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, but it was through your faith in Christ, Timothy, that you came to salvation. But notice that it tells Timothy. Now, if you look in your Bibles, just take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. I don't have it for you on, uh, on the PowerPoint, but 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, it's just a couple scrolls uh, back or a couple pages in your physical Bibles. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, it says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy. A faith, the first, look at where this faith, look at the, the, the language, dwelt. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother. This is grandparents' ministry. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So this idea of, of tabernacling, dwelling, that the Word of God is not just in the mind. The Word of God just doesn't just come and go. The Word of God is captured. It's dwelling in the heart. Uh, and, and so it's, it's filled with love. There's disciple-making from a grandmother down to discipling her own daughter, Eunice, and then Eunice being the, the mother of Timothy, passing down the word of God to the subsequent generation. Here you see intergenerational discipleship. In our church, we have grandparents who are likely, now there's some in here, there are some in here because we're getting younger, but there are likely some of your grandparents in one of the other congregations, in one of our other congregations, but you are here. Right? And, then, and then some of you have your children here. And, and so there, there's, there's multiple generations. We have in our church grandparents, who are in the faith, parents who are in the faith, and now the children, adult children, and then, you know, you have the newborns, as Gabe referred to, in the faith. And so, or not yet in the faith. We're not Presbyterian, right? But, but we want them to be in the faith. We want them to be in the faith. I, when I get around your babies, I don't carry a bottle of water. I want to keep it really clear what our intentions are, is we, we want to dunk the parents, 
okay? And the parent is responsible for discipling that child. And when that child is ready to make a full confession of faith, we put him underwater fully, okay? So 2 Timothy 1.5, it gives us the foundation. So by the time, you can go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, but by the time Paul got to Timothy, Paul was simply building upon a foundation. You see, it's much easier for the pastor or the spiritual leader or the disciple maker when, when, when they get to that child or when they get to that young man or that young woman, that young man or woman has already been poured into by Christian parents, not only Christian parents, but Christian grandparents. Now I know that for some of us, we did not grow up in a Christian home. Some of you, you don't have, we have children in our church who their parents might have dropped them off here, uh, but they don't come from Christian homes, and that's where all of us can participate as spiritual parents to disciple. And, and in that case, we as a church become the first ones or maybe the primary disciple makers in the life of these children and young people who don't have Christian parents. Or maybe they just have one Christian parent, and that parent needs additional assistance. But Christian parents are the primary disciple makers in the life of the next generation and in the home. Parents are the hope for a post-Christian world. Christian parents, and those of you, even if you're not parents, so you can be single assisting a parent with their child. You can be a grandparent or someone who's an empty nester assisting a parent. That is the hope. That is the hope for the future generations. We understand that Satan has always wanted to attack the family unit. You go back to Genesis 3. What's the first division besides the separation between God and man? It's Adam and Eve. The marriage is now under attack. What is the, what is the, then what happens? Cain kills his brother. You see, Satan has always wanted to destroy the family. He wants to destroy the definition of a biblical family. That might be confusing the genders. That might be, you know, uh, same-sex marriage, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, and even strife within heterosexual marriages, and then the relationship between the parent and the child. Satan wants to destroy that. I mentioned, you know, last week in 2 Timothy chapter, or two weeks ago in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, that you have this crazy list of evil vices, right? All these evil vices. And then there's one that seems harmless. It's, it's like evil, blah, 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 blah. And then disobedient to parents. And my intention was to come back to it. That disobedience to parents is serious because it's not that, you know, simple disobedience. I mean, all of us, if you're a parent or if you've been a parent or even as a spiritual parent, you have to raise your children in obedience. But disobedience to parents, when you have good parents and the child is disobedient, that is actually the child, because they have a sin nature, learning to rebel against God's created order. It's the beginning point. And we know all of us were sinful children, and we had to learn. And so that's why parenting is so difficult, because Satan knows that the flesh in a child, ever since the child's a baby, is going to start to rebel. And so parents are actually on the front line of maintaining God's created order, and, and it's like a miniature when the child, once again, rebels consistently against the parent. And I'm not talking about abusive parents, but I'm talking about a good, well-meaning parent, imperfect parents, parents that are going to make mistakes, yell at your kids, you're going to get, you know, you're going to have to apologize, repent, and you're going to raise your kids, all the trials, the church comes alongside of you to help, 
you're basically training that child to reverse a heart of rebellion against authority, and eventually it's going to be against God. And so that's part of Satan's design. So that's why the family is on the front line of the cultural battle. It's always. The family is always on the front line of the cultural battle. That's always been the case. So a church without families needs families, right? So, so it, is, it is the family ministry that is the heartbeat of addressing the post-Christian concerns. Once again, if you're single and you're here, yeah, you're going to be impacted by post-Christian values. But you know what? You're a big boy. You're a big girl. You're going to be okay. Especially if you're 50 plus and you've believed in Jesus for so long. You're going to be okay. You're worried about the, the, the future generations, right? That's what we're worried about. And again, the answer is there's scripture, but you put the hands of scripture into the hands of parents and other spiritual parents, and you disciple down. You disciple down. Now, when I, when I speak to parents of our generation, and even parents in, the, in our Chinese congregations, most of the time nowadays, we're preaching to the choir. Uh, nowadays, most parents want to take responsibility. They want to take responsibilities. They understand, okay, they understand that church only offers at best seven hours a week of discipleship for subsequent generations. So if you come to every Friday night ministry, and if you come to Sunday school and all that, and you bring your kids, on average, about seven hours maximum. While for the rest of the week, the, all of us are constantly bombarded, but especially the children and you've bombarded with other cultural and worldly ideas. And so, but when I was the youth minister, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, it was a different mindset where the parents would literally treat the church like a mechanic shop and they look at their kids like vehicles. You know, here, fix my kid. Okay, you're done with the three hours. My kid is good. So, but I understood the Confucian thinking. The Confucian thinking of compartmentalization, right? You send your kids to school for academics. It's supposed to be academically enriching. Uh, but then you know the schools aren't sufficient. So you send your kids, if you can afford to, to some type of after-school tutoring, what, to strengthen their mental and their academic ability. You might sign your kids up for sports to learn teamwork and strengthen their athletic ability. You might sign your kids up for piano or violin or, or something like that to strengthen and, 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 you know, touch on their musical and artistic abilities, art class. And then on top of that, next week, you send them to church for spiritual training. And you're thinking, okay, I, I sent them to church. The church is going to fix them. The church is going to guarantee they're saved. That was 10 years ago. Now, most of the time, even the parents from the other congregations who don't, you know, English is not their primary language, they don't think like that anymore. They don't think like that anymore. In fact, right now, Pastor Frank in the Mandarin congregation, he has a class that's equipping parents to deal with cultural issues in Mandarin. And so, so even our Chinese pastors are working together with the English pastors to say, how do we equip the parents? Because nowadays, the parents care deeply. We all understand what we're up against. And remember, when you're dealing with immigrants, immigrants are naturally more conservative in values, Christian or not. And this not only includes Asian immigrants, but Hispanic immigrants coming from some type of Judeo-Christian Catholic background. 
That's why don't be afraid, brothers and sisters. Southern California is never going to become Portland, Oregon. And one of the reasons why is in Portland, Oregon, which I love Portland, right? I love their food and their coffee. But they don't have as, as many immigrants, so a lot of their cultural ideas are just academic, progressive, you know, critical theory. But, it's, but, but when you come to L.A., which is liberal, you have immigrants, which keeps us conservative. And so, so don't go out there thinking, oh, you know, Los Angeles is going to hell. It's immigrants that just bring in conservative value. And so when we're teaching parents to equip their, you know, when we want to equip parents to engage their children, that is an, evangel uh, an evangelical, I want to say, but evangelistic opportunity to reach immigrants who want to come because of an English-anchored ministry to equip parents, not just children, but equip parents to be primary disciple-makers. We need to move on, so we must hold fast to God's Word because first, Scripture is foundational for salvation in Christ. But secondly, the second reason, Scripture is foundational for disciple-making in the home. But Scripture is also God's inspired Word. Uh, next week in the, in the Christian Theology Sunday School, we're going to talk about this. And we will do some instruction, not just conversation, but uh, we're going to have some instruction on this. But uh, notice in verses 16 to 17, Paul tells Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is amazing. The, the language of breathe out, it brings you back to creation, right? Is that God, how, what did he do? He spoke creation, but how did he create man? It says through his breath, he spoke it, and as he breathed life into man, into the dust, he formed human life. Uh, this is the creative word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Paul's referring to the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration speaks of authority. We're talking about divine inspiration refers to the divine authority of scripture. Divine inspiration refers to the divine authority of scripture. I said that on purpose like that. Those of you who listen to Christian preachers, who does that sound like? Anybody? I'm not trying to imitate. Who would say something like that? Say his name. Say it. Just yell it. Go ahead, brother. MacArthur. John MacArthur. I did not grow up in a Christian home. But I listened over and over and over again and just beat this doctrine into me, right? Every day, grace to you. I mean, I know MacArthur is too dogmatic on certain areas, and so you need discernment. But every day, driving, you know, when I had to drive in the car, my college days, every day from seminary, um, listening to G the GTY. And over and over again, right, you hear the meaning of the text is the text. The word of God, the doctrine, the authority. It's, it's, it's a, some of you, you don't have to be a parent, to be a disciple maker. Last week I talked about, um, I, I talked about how you know you need real life relationships. So it's a combination of real life disciple making, along with real pastors who pastor you, and then you extend to those pastors who teach generations. Right. MacArthur, for all the things that maybe he's too dogmatic on, one of the things that he has done well is he's raised up a generation of pastors and preachers, multiple generations of pastors and preachers committed to just that divine inspiration, 
divine authority of Scripture. Divine inspiration refers to the divine authority of Scripture. God has supernaturally inspired and influenced the sacred writers of Scripture. Let me just explain what inspiration is. Inspiration is not Harry Potterism. It is not Paul picking up a pen and, you know, the Holy Spirit's just moving his pen and he has no control. Paul is writing to Timothy, addressing very specific issues in the church of Ephesus. And so Paul is using his wisdom. He's using a practical context. He's writing to it. And so Paul wrote with his own intelligence, and he's writing with language and prose and grammar. But yet, whatever he's writing, the Holy Spirit is moving in him, and that's divine inspiration. It's a... It's a coming together of the Spirit of God, the divine inspired power of God through the Spirit, and the biblical author. And that's divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, moving through real human authors to reveal truth recorded so they can be passed down. In writing, so that it can be passed down through every generation. And so we know that Scripture is an external source of authority. It is an external revelation of truth rather than our cultural climate, which is saying it's all about internal discovery. If truth is determined just from whatever you want to discover from within, then truth becomes subjective. It can't change you. It can't shape you. It changes every every generation. That truth morphs and changes. It's no longer called truth because it's whatever you want. In order for people to have truth shape them, it needs to be an external revelation. Why is that even more important? Because humans are sinful. So if, if the seat of interpretation and if the seat of truth rests in the heart of man, then you have a fallen interpreter. At the end of the day, the interpretation of truth needs an external source. And that is why we need the Bible. And that's why what we pass down to the next generation is an external source of revelation. And I know it's hard to do, right? But it's not you discover and determine your own identity. It's the Bible shapes your identity to be like Christ. And so the Bible is an external source of divine truth. It is sufficient and effective to shape you into Christ's likeness. Now we get to reason number four, right? Not only is Scripture the inspired Word of God, But the fourth reason to hold fast to the scriptures is because scripture is effective for all aspects of Christian discipleship. All aspects. Now let me read that to you. Verse 16 and 17. It says, and profitable. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now, first, when it says the man of God, this is in the masculine, but it's speaking in application to every Christ follower. So so this is not just, oh, this only applies to pastors, or this only applies to men. The man of God, in this context, would be Timothy, but when he teaches everyone to live out the scriptures, he's teaching men and women of the church. So that all of us, every Christian, would be complete equipped for every good work. Let's break it down a little bit, and we're going to explain more of this next week. But first, Scripture is profitable. What is it profitable for? It's effective. It's profitable meaning it's effective. It generates results. It, it generates a profit. It generates the result of effective discipleship for what? 
And it's good for teaching, which refers to what we're doing now, biblical instruction. It's good for reproof. Reproof means being, it's, it means being rebuked or admonished. And that's why I say, well, where does that primarily happen? In the beginning stages of your life, it's in the home, right? Which means being rebuked or admonished so that you are convicted of your sins. For correction, this is the idea of biblical counseling, to correct, which carries the idea of restoring. Correction is not discipline and kick out, right? It is, it is a loving correction where you take a bone that's broken and you try to restore it or a bone uh, that's out of socket and you're trying to restore it back into place. You want to make someone whole. It's for correction. It carries the idea of restoration of something that's broken. And then for training in righteousness. Righteousness here refers to growth in holiness or godliness. It's about the righteous character of Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit can apply here. But the training aspect, think athletics, not analytics. Dodger fans, not analytics. (laughs) but athletics, right? So in athletics, athletes compete to physical, they commit to physical training, and physical training is not easy. Sometimes it's very painful. In fact, physical training is easy if you're just trying to do leisure exercise, but if you want to compete at the highest level of athletics, that physical training is gruesome. It is painful. It hurts. In the same way, the Christian life requires training. It's not easy. Parenting is not easy. Marriage is not easy. Single, being single as a Christian is not easy. It's not easy. Paul was single. There's value in that. He was able to do more for Christ. And so training is required. So sometimes we say, oh, discipleship, it's hard. Relationship, it's hard. People don't want to listen. Or I don't know what to say. It's awkward at times. That, it's because it's training. The Word of God requires us to take the Word of God and train people in righteousness. It's never easy. Then in verse 17, Paul writes, the Scripture is profitable so the man of God may be complete. Now, the word complete, it means capable, proficient, qualified, sound, but essentially it means you're able to meet every demand of the Christian life. And so, of course, all of this training must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a point where every Christian would ever become perfect. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about equipping for every problem that we need to deal with in life. And so we need Scripture. Scripture is completely sufficient. And when it says equip, this is the idea of equipment, right? You need equipment for everything in life. And the word equip is a simple term. You can't do any good work. With, without proper equipment, in the same way, you cannot live out the good works of Christ-like living without the proper equipment of Scripture. Now, this idea of good works, right, so that the man of God might be equipped, that we would be equipped for every good work. Remind me once again, beloved, who is Paul writing to? Timothy. And where is Timothy pastoring? Ephesus. Now, you look at Ephesians, Chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, and this idea of good works, it says in verse, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God created us 
for good works, and he created us in, in, uh, in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the idea that the same way that God creates, he breathes out life, he creates us. He breathes life into us through his creative word. He takes that word and packages that scripture, and he uses the same creative force of scripture which reveals Jesus Christ, and he uses the word of God to produce the purpose for why he created us, to perform good works, not just good works by themselves, but created in Christ Jesus, that through recreation, because of a relationship with Christ, we produce character that reflects Christ. We produce good works which God prepared beforehand, and that helps you understand what it means that Scripture is sufficient to equip us for every good work, the work that God has created us for. So the big idea, oh, I have the Scripture for you. The big idea is hold fast to the Scriptures. Why? Because it contains doctrine that God uses. God uses it to save people and to disciple every generation for Christ. Hold fast to the Scriptures because it contains doctrine that God uses to save and disciple every generation for Christ. Now, how does this passage speak to our church in light of a post-Christian world? First, I want to speak to the families. Even if you're single, even if you're empty nesting, this applies to you. And my question is, why would you stay here in California? I am not opposed to my friends who have chosen uh, to move to Texas the great country of Texas, the friends that I love there. I have brothers that the only sin they have is they, they cheer for the Houston Astros. I love, I love my brothers <laughs> in Christ there. But when it comes to young families, I often heard this. I want to move to Texas. You know, it's a, not only for the money stuff, the, the tax savings stuff, but it's safer for our families. They're tougher on crime, supposedly. Um, they allow for more freedom, for self-defense. And most importantly, the schools, the schools, they're able to keep some of the agenda out. And so we feel like it's safer. Well, if that's what God is calling you to, that's a matter of, of you and God. That's a matter of conviction, calling, and wisdom. But I think if I'm preaching you to, to you today, you need to view your family like a missionary family here in California. You need to have a sense of calling, Right? You, you are a spiritual foreigner in this land, which means living in California eventually will make you experience more of, more of, not exactly, but more of what the saints experienced in the early church as New Testament Christians. You see, think like a missionary, but it's different for us because we already live here. A missionary will move their family to a foreign land where that missionary knows that they're going to raise their children in a place where their values might be very different from their own. So they make some plans, whether that's homeschool or using the private schools or using the school system, but they make some plans. They understand. They don't go in there looking for safety. They take responsibility for primary disciple-making, yet... They aren't comfortable. They're not at comfort. They're okay with not having ease. Why? It's because of calling. They feel called to raise their families in those foreign nations, and they grow to love the people who don't have Christ. And they teach their children why they're there. And they teach their children, this is why we're here, to love the people who need Jesus. They're not there for comfort or ease. I believe that as families living in the state of California especially if you move more north, (laughs) 
the more you're going to have to take that call that you have to pray to God and say, have you called me here to raise a family here as a everyday missionary? And there are, once again, there are Christians moving out of California because they feel like it's safer to raise their kids there. And again, that's between them and God, right? But you and I must be missionaries, which means we as pastors need to start speaking to you like you're missionaries, like you're missionaries. We need to speak to you like you're mature in Christ. Start equipping you to be theological and cultural missionaries. The difference is that we aren't going to a foreign nation, beloved. The culture around us in America, it's, this, it feels less like home. So it's not so much that we're going into a foreign nation, but the nation around us is becoming more foreign when it comes to Christian values. And so that's what we have to understand. This is our home. It may not feel like home. Remember, 1 Peter tells us that we are sojourners, exiles, and foreigners. Teach your kids to be missionary kids. I know that's hard. Second, the second application is equipping parents and grandparents as disciple makers is the common thread that unites our church from the ground up. We have a vision uniting us from the top. Disciple making. And disciple making is most natural. Let me show you this diagram. Disciple making is most naturally going to happen within each of our congregations. Makes sense. Cantonese brothers and sisters in Christ are going to disciple their own brothers and sisters in Christ or new believers in the same language, adult to adult. Mandarin, adult to adult. English, adult to adult. But when it comes to the children and youth and other people, we need to go across the board. And a lot of times, English is anchoring these ministries. I want you to notice in this diagram that uh, we are not three churches. If it was just disciple-making, we could be three churches. But we're not three churches. We're, it's one house. It's one house. Notice that the walls don't go all the way to the top. Some of you guys live in a condo. A condo, your wall should go all the way to the top. It's your house. It's, it's a single unit. This is not three single units. This is three rooms in one house, one roof. That roof above symbolizes one pastoral staff that meets together. One vision. One church-wide finance, however you want to cut it. That's from the top. The pastors have to go from the top, and there needs to be unity. But from the ground, what unites us? It has to be the family basement. The family basement is that this is the one ministry that every congregation needs. This is the, the one ministry that sets us apart from other churches. This is the one ministry that other churches might not need in the same way. This is the one ministry that the immigrants that come in need. This is the one ministry that even non-immigrants are going to want and desire. This is the one ministry that we actually can do well. It's the one thing that keeps us together. It's the equipping parents and grandparents as primary disciple makers in the home. It's in the home. It's from the bottom up. Now, you have to understand how some churches like ours operate. I'm going to ask you for another five minutes today, okay, so I can explain this. Is that sometimes in you have what they call a townhouse model. These models are adopted from uh, Professor Ben Shin from uh, Talbot School of Theology, as well as 
you know, our brother who preached to us last Christmas, Daniel Kaying, he has some stuff. And then there's also a brother I know named uh, DJ Schwang who wrote a book called Multi-Asian Church. And so, you know, they, they talk about these different diagrams. Some churches like ours, Asian immigrant churches, they have a townhouse model. And it's basically, it's two separate churches on one campus, meaning separate pastoral staff, separate elder boards or leaderships, separate budgets, um, across the board. So one is a Chinese or a Korean, and the other one is English, and they might have different names, they, but then they all share the same children's and youth ministry. Some of them, the Chinese or the Asian psych runs the ministry, even though it's in English for the youth and children. Other times, it's the English. And one of the conflicts that happens is that you have the youth and children's workers, and maybe even the English pastor teaching one set of values and philosophy of ministry to the kids and so they go home and then their Korean or Chinese parents their pastors are teaching something different maybe something a little more Confucian and it leads to Confucian leads to confusion right and so you have a you have you have two churches now two separate churches but there's conflict if they were independent there wouldn't be a conflict but but the Chinese and the Korean side always need English ministry for the subsequent generations and we're learning that the English side, we need our, our Mandarin and Cantonese to help us evangelize to our parents. All right, so we are not simply one church, I mean, I'm sorry, three churches on one campus that happen to share children's and youth ministries. We actually need to work together. So the pastor's meetings are long, but actually in our church, the youth and children can lead because when they bring up issues, when Kevin and Katie bring up issues, the Chinese pastors are listening and hearing, and the English pastors are, are listening and hearing, and we're saying we got to tackle this together. So then you have the Chinese pastors going into their congregation saying, this is what we need. So you have the pastors teaching a disciple-making vision from the top in all three congregations. Same thing. We preach this, usually we preach the same book, same applications, contextualized for the language. And then you have the children and youth coming from the bottom, so that when you go into the home, it doesn't matter if your parents are in another congregation, you're getting the same thing. And that means just, just it takes us a lot longer. We work together. But, but that is why I think a lot of Asian American churches are pushing towards townhouse model. Let's be more independent. It's easier. That works in some cases. In our case, it would lead to continual division and challenge. It may be pragmatically easier, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is the basement that unites us, and actually it makes us stronger. It makes us stronger because we need each other. And this is what we mean. I don't like the term English leads because it speaks like we're superior. But in essence, we use the term English anchors. English is the anchor congregation because when we do our job well, the Chinese congregations flourish, and they know that we love them and we are for them. When we do good work in doctrinal disciple-making across every generation, then they can appeal to the immigrant non-believer, come because we have strong ministries for your children and your family, and we will equip you in your own language, being helped by the English of how to address these cultural issues that I know you're troubled by. And so we really work together, and that's why we're one church. Now, here's the thing. If you are troubled, if some of you are struggling with some of the anti-Christian values, how much more so, and you understand English, and you understand American politics, American society, how much more so is it stressful for an immigrant parent? And so they need our help. And so if you're a grandparent that speaks Chinese at all, you can assist, and we can work together, right? If you're, if you're a grandparent in English, you can help each other 
in terms of what are your resources for other grandparents. If you're a parent in a community group, you can resource each other. And you know what? Some of your kids, their friends, their parents are in the other congregation. So if they can understand enough English, you resource over to each other in a different setting, right? We realize that the post-Christian world makes us more united as one church. And then if you're single, young adults, we need you. We need your, the time resource that you have. But like I mentioned, we need you to teach us the technological tools not so much the message we agree on, but the methods. Those of you who are single and young, and you know firsthand how to address some of the issues. You teach us. We'll listen. We'll listen, right? And, and so I think this is something where we as a church, we as a church need to come together and see that our vision is to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches. Reproduction is discipleship. But what unites all three congregations is, is the family basement. It is the commitment of our church to commit to equipping parents and grandparents of all three congregations to be primary disciple makers, both in the church and in the home. And all of this talk about disciple making, some of you are thinking, what about my personal needs? What about me? Go back to today's passage. If you hold fast to the doctrines of Scripture, and because Scripture is sufficient to counsel you and equip you in all aspects of Christian discipleship, because of Scripture, if you hold fast to Scripture, the more you focus on Scripture, the more you will be less, the less you'll be focused on yourself. Not only will you be fed by the Scriptures, but you will be convinced and won over that you need to focus less on yourself and more on Christ and his great commission to disciple future generations. That's what I mentioned last week. FCBC Walnut will not do things that other churches are called to do very well, but the one thing that God has called us to do is to disciple subsequent generations for Jesus Christ. And we need a strong, vibrant English adult ministry because that is what's going to sustain future families to want to come here. When the youth graduate and go to college, why would they come back to a church like ours? The only reason is because there's strong, multi-generational English adults. And so the stronger our adults are, it actually blesses our two Chinese congregations. I preached in the Mandarin this morning, a totally different passage, and I told them, I told them, you guys are our congregation. We speak to them like they are our congregation. It's not the Mandarin, the Cantonese. If we are going to anchor, if we are going to anchor, we need to show the Chinese congregations how much we love them. Because unlike other Chinese churches, you know, sometimes they feel like the minority in our English majority church. We tell them that we love them more than we know. And though how we're going to help them we're going to come alongside of them, and we're going to help them understand the post-Christian world, and we're going to help them disciple our kids. I mean, their kids, because we're learning how to disciple our kids and our grandkids. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a church of three language congregations, but thank you for giving us unity, one united vision as a church of disciple makers. Be with us now, regardless of whether we are married 
or not, whether we are parents or not, whether we are grandparents or not, whether we're single, whether we're young, old, in between, help us, Lord, to see that all Scripture is sufficient for all of life. Help us to hold fast to the Scriptures and allow the Scriptures to grab hold of us. Remind us through the Scriptures that through this world, you are holding us fast to yourself. Help us, Lord, to love you and to live for you and to love your church, even those who are different from us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.